Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to Mile Millennial Money with John Pigeon and have the pleasure of talking to Vince Scully today, author of The Latte Fallacy and uh, Extraordinary Financial Planner. How are you, Vince? G'day, John. Great to be here. It is. And uh, we are talking 2022 budget now. As That's the uh, federal budget. That's the federal budget. It occurred last night, so we're going to give a, a wrap of what that means and our thoughts and comments on it, right there or wrongly, and uh, just see how does it affect you, how does it affect others around the country, and uh, and what they're going to stand for and how it's going to be passed. So let's get into it. Well, where would you like to start? Um, I mean, perhaps my first take out of this was that um, it was probably one of the better budget speeches I've heard in the last... 30 odd years okay that's not a comment on its content merely its delivery and i think i've got a whole new respect for jim chalmers i'd always thought about him as being a smirker delivering snide comments in opposition but last night was a really well delivered speech with the proviso that he may have sacrificed content for <laughs> rhetorical flourish but it was a a well put together speech that wasn't full of what well, yeah three word slogans that we've seen for the last um, years but one of the most interesting bits about it um, was that he never used the word mr speaker once during the speech really uh, he referred to the speaker as speaker not mr speaker mm. and i thought well is this a sign that we're going to have lots more um, female speakers in the future yes well, we've only had three and, of course, Bronwyn Bishop might have been one of the fiercest of our speakers. She was fierce. So I I made some notes, which is unusual for me. Uh, and one of the first things I wrote was Jim Chalmers' friend or foe. Yeah, I mean, if you'd asked me that question two weeks ago, I would have said, well, I would have erred towards the foe side of that mm. equation. But I think he demonstrated in this budget a willingness to at least hint at making the hard decisions. Um, I don't think he made very many, but, you know, I think he's clearly laying the groundwork for, in his words, levelling with the Australian public. I got the feeling as though he was preparing Australians for some tough times ahead. Yeah. And, you know, I think tough times is a relative concept. Yes. You know, is 7% inflation for a short period really an economic disaster. You know, I, when I released my book earlier in this year, that's called Live the Life You Want with the Money You Have, um, available at all good bookstores. Um, and Glenn's got an affiliate link. Um, but I pulled out some statistics from 1983, the year I graduated. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and this is in Ireland, of course, not in Australia, um, Australia being the lucky country. But back then, we had 17% inflation, 13% interest rates, and 24% unemployment. Unbelievable. Today, we are heading into inflation peaking at seven and a half mm-hmm. this year, dropping to five to three, and um, unemployment with a four in front of it, a three, well, three in front of it now, and a four over most of the forecast periods. And we're still looking at economic growth in the threes, probably. Yeah. So whilst that's tougher than we've experienced for much of the last 20 years, potentially even 30 years, it's hardly the end of the universe as we know it. Um, But that's not to say that it's not going to hurt a lot of families in particular. Electricity prices rising, not entirely as a result of the budget, but as a result of energy policy and what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, Inflation outstripping wages and the things that households spend money on rising. So we will feel it. Certainly families and young couples will feel it in their pocket. But, you know, I don't think this is the end of the universe as we know it. No, and it, and it never is really. It's just a, it's a new adjustment for a lot of people. And, and as you said, we have have had it easy for or easier for a long while, um, especially the last, if we if we're, have a mortgage, the last three or four years have been pretty straightforward, um, lower record interest rates um, or lowest interest rates. Um, But relative, like cost of living, you you refer back to 1983, cost of living then versus cost of living now in relation to wages. Um, I mean, this may be an unpopular opinion, but I think our standard of living, that is what we can buy as a basket, has gone up. Um, certainly lots of things have got more expensive, um, you know, particularly fresh food, uh, energy, um, which are the ones that we're very sensitive to. Mm-hmm. One of the things that always puzzled me in Australia was how sensitive Australian consumers were to fuel prices, Yes, despite for most of the last 40 years having the third lowest energy uh, fuel prices in the world. Um, so when I say living standards have gone up, I mean, if you look at the the cost of the overall things we buy, yeah, cars have come down in cost and got way better in quality. TVs, yeah, my, I bought a 19-inch TV in 1983 for £400. Um, so call that $1,000 yeah, unadjusted for inflation and work out what you listeners. get today, right? Mm. And then you add inflation, you know, what, do you, what sort of TV can you buy for $4,000? That's so, a lot of TV. So, but... As a household, you know, where are we spending more money? Um, education, um, child, well, childcare and education, uh, health, retirement, all those things that we may have had from the government or our employer in the past. And, of course, we've moved largely from single-income households to dual-income households, and yet our tax system still works on individual incomes to a large extent. Mm. Okay, so... And Vince and I didn't really have a structure here today, but we wanted to thrash surprise, this out. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and I, I wanted to get uh, Vince's intake because his experience in life and the journey has been much more elaborate than mine. But I've listened to about 35 of these speeches. 
<laughs> and um, actually listened. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's unbelievable to to have that um, up your sleeve, and and we want to get a lot of that out of you today. But before we get into the weeds of it, talk to us about the deficit. There was a comment made that there'll be no return to surplus in the next five years. Yeah. Um- I mean, the government is different to you or I. Um, you know, we can't for long periods spend more than we earn. Yeah. Um, governments can, and in many cases should, spend more than they earn. So the concept of a deficit per se is not a bad thing on its own. Where it becomes a problem is where you have what's called a structural deficit. That is, your growth in spending exceeds your growth in income. And governments should be spending money to either build infrastructure and other services for the future, to set aside money for dealing with future things, or to um, affect the speed of the economy. So if government spends more than it earns, that's in general expansionary. So they're pumping more money into the economy than they're taking out, which means demand goes up. Because if they give it to you, you go and spend it. If they spend it to build roads, they employ people, etc. So spending more than you earn is generally expansionary and spending less than you earn is contractionary. And this is where the challenge of a budget comes in, that if you're heading into a recession where economic growth is slowing, you actually want to spend mm. to stimulate the economy. But by doing so, you run the risk of stimulating inflation. Which is what happening now. Which is what's happening now. Although you know, most of the inflation we're seeing now is supply-driven rather than demand-driven. That is, it's driven by input costs going up. So fuel is going up because of what's in Ukraine. Electricity is going up partly because of that and partly because we're spending money to future-proof the network for renewables. Yes. Um, food's going up because of the floods and because of the difficulty in War. flying it in and yeah. all those sort of things. So that's a sort of a different type of inflation than inflation driven by governments. But what we don't want to have is the Reserve Bank pulling in one direction by pumping up interest rates to slow demand yeah. and the government working the other way to stimulate the economy and increase inflation. So yeah. what you've got to do is get a balance between the two. And of course, we notionally have an independent reserve bank yes. who obviously do what they want to do within their mandate, subject okay. to keeping their jobs. So in normal households, if if we're spending more than we're earning, we're having to get that money from somewhere. Yeah. So you've got to borrow it and that obviously has to be repaid. Mm. With the government, um, ultimately they can print money. So if you're borrowing, if you're an Australian government borrowing in Australian dollars, you can either put up taxes or you can grow the economy so your same percentage of it gets bigger yeah. or you can simply print money. And Australian government technically can't default on Australian dollar debt because you just print more. Print it, yeah. But the risk of printing too much is inflation. Is inflation going up? And loss of consumer confidence, which is probably the bigger deal. So if you expect stuff to be cost more next year or you expect your dollar to be worth less next year, yeah. your behaviour will change. Yeah. And that's the that's – the, and that's what we saw in the 70s. So we started with a 
supply-driven inflation with the oil shocks of 73, 74, and followed by economic slowdowns. So we had what's called stagflation. So we had inflation and declining growth, which is the worst of both worlds. Yes. So that's not what we're seeing today. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone's suggesting that economic growth is going to go backwards for very long. Yeah, okay. So before we get into the to the weeds of what the budget presented, what's your commentary on the next two to three years? Doom and gloom? Recession? No, I, I'm not in the doom and gloom. Um, I see, because I don't really like doing predictions, especially about the future, but um, I see this inflation as being transitory and I don't see it moving into a massive decline in economic growth. Um, and that's sort of built into the government's expectations. The government's saying, look, we expect inflation to peak at seven and a half in the December quarter, dropping to four and a half for the financial year and then getting back to three and a half next year and back into the RBA's target range the year after. Mm. That's not the end of the world, especially when you look at what created it. Um, the World Bank is clearly saying global growth is falling um, and we're particularly in China, not that you can ever trust the Chinese GDP numbers, but I think you don't have to be um, Milton Friedman to understand that the Chinese economy isn't growing as fast as it was and may very well be shrinking. Mm. And so what's that going to do for their demand for our exports, which is where most of them go? Yeah. So that's the big challenge. So in this budget, there's $70 billion, that's billion, which is like a lot. Twice the size of the forecast deficit, mm. which has come fr largely from improved prices for our commodities mm. and its flow through to um, income tax and spending. Yeah. So Warren Buffett says, when others show fear, I show courage. We're showing courage right now? Um, I mean, I'm not sure that we should be too focused on the big picture stuff that we can't control. Mm. Um, you control to a large extent your spending. But yes. before I get on to it, just finish off on that previous thought about, you know, what are the risks to that? Um, you know, the risk could be a, you know, an extended or escalated war in Ukraine. You know, the feedback I'm getting from our IT team in the Ukraine is that, um, you know, they're pretty resigned to going through this winter, but they don't actually see it going through the winter after. Um, you know, what would a coordinated global downturn do to Australia? Keep in mind, we haven't had a recession since 91. Mm. Um, we could have one, but it's probably likely to be short and sharp. Yeah. And then getting back to the stuff, well, what can I control? Yeah. Well, I can control to some extent what I earn. I yeah. can certainly control to a large extent what I spend. But taking that through to what should I be doing with my investments and whether I should be moving my super, that's a more dangerous yes. concept yeah, to, to apply that, that to. So I'm not sure we should be <laughs> no, going there. We won't go deep on that. Uh, but when I heard the commentary about wage growth and, and the lack thereof it, I think to everyone out on the street, not physically on the street, but average Australians, and, and I think to unemployment being relatively low, you've got choice, haven't you? to be able to say, well, I'm on $80,000 a 
now I'm going to look around mm. and shop around and see if I can bump that up to cater for the increased cost yeah. of living. I mean, there is a limit to um, how much employers can pay even in the face of shortage of labour because ultimately it's limited by what value you as an employee add. Yes. And as a nation, we haven't been adding value for a decade. So if you look at yeah. real GDP per head, so when you factor out growth due to immigration and inflation, it hasn't changed in a decade. Mm. So when you come in to work to produce a podcast, you're not producing 7.5% more podcasts this year. No. You're not charging 7.5% more for the adverts. So why why can the delivery of the podcast de- deliver you 7.5% more income? That's the question that every employee needs to ask is what am I doing to add value in my job and am I generating value in excess of what I'm expecting to be paid and then demonstrating that to your employer. So when you've got a situation, I'm intrigued by this, by the (laughs) way, (laughs) have we had a situation where falling wages, rising unemployment? Without knowing the numbers off to my head, I would expect that that would have been the case in large chunks of the 70s and early 80s where we had stagflation. Mm. Um, And the only reason it probably wasn't such a problem in Australia is because we had centralised wage bargaining where unions just got inflation-based increases. Yeah, okay. Um, But Mm. GDP per head in real terms has not increased for 10 years. Yeah. The only reason we've looked like an economic powerhouse is Mm. immigration. And guess what? We haven't had any of that for the last two years. No. So don't be surprised. That'll be on the bounce back. Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, let's talk about the budget. Uh, who, in your eyes, who were the winners? Now, that's an interesting question. When I, I was interviewed by the AFR this time last year. Yes. And, they didn't get you back. And No, they didn't. Oh, not yet. Um, <laughs> and I described it as a hot chocolate budget where everyone's a winner, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, I think it's more of a Sean the Sheep budget <laughs> where Sean the Sheep never misses a step or skips yeah. a beat, I think is the, the, the song. A blue-collar yeah. budget. <laughs> and... <laughs> A bad budget. Um, <laughs> no, but when I say that, I mean uh, Jim Chalmers didn't miss a trick in trying to dress up what is, in effect, a relatively contractionary budget, and I use the word relatively very loosely there, um, into something that appeared to help everyone. Mm. But if you want to identify specific winners, um, I think families, yep. retirees, um, so a lot of money put into childcare. Yeah, I mean it looks like a lot of money, but you know most of this spending is not paying for the so-called Gillard reforms. I mean Julie Gillard, the so-called childcare reforms in the Gillard era, yeah. massively increased the cost of delivery of childcare. Yeah, by you know reducing the number of kids per per childcare worker, trying to turn childcare into early childhood education. Mm. Now, you might argue that doing so is a good thing and improving the quality of early childhood education might be a good thing. But if we think that's the right answer from a public policy perspective, well, perhaps it should be provided just like normal education is. Yeah, well, I suppose from my view that the intent was to subsidise 
90% first child, 95% yep. second child. So that allows the parent to go back to work. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly better that that impost be placed on the public purse than on the employer, which sort of yep. brings us back to the next family thing, which was the improvement in paid parental leave. Yep. Although that's not going to happen overnight. So if you're pregnant now, you're no. probably... You're going out. to miss out. Yeah, so that was it. Was a bit grey area there, wasn't it? Twenty six weeks within mm. the next four years. Yeah. So, so that's that's obviously designed to increase mostly female participation, but parental participation in the yeah. workforce generally. And you know, if you were to place that obligation on employers, you obviously increase the cost of employing parents or women, particularly, mm. which is likely to generate the exact opposite outcome you're trying to achieve because your employer so. has to pay more to employ a woman, yeah. um, they're just not going to. Yeah. Um, whereas by saying there's an economic benefit to the nation in doing this and therefore we as a society should be paying for this for the 300,000 new parents each year. Yeah. Okay, so on to, uh, I suppose, property or home ownership and the dire straits position we've got with affordability and in a lot of ways accessibility for a lot of disadvantaged and disabled, um, pretty disappointing. Um, yeah, I mean, there were a few interesting announcements around property and home ownership specifically. Sounded good, like a million dollar, uh, one million homes. Can I tell you how many times I've heard that announcement <laughs> in the last thirty years? Like one million homes sounds like a lot, but the forecast was already nine hundred. Yeah, so we we as a nation build about two hundred thousand new dwellings a year. Mm. Yeah, fluctuates a bit, but on average, it's about 200,000. And there's about 100 and something thousand new household formations every year. So the market is basically in balance on a total quantity basis. The problem is um, we have a large group of people who earn less than, well, obviously by definition of half the population earns less than the median income. Yes. And the availability of real estate in that price range in the locations as people live. That's mm. the challenge. Mm. So, yeah, 200,000 social and affordable dwellings every year would make a massive difference to that. But the concept that any policy could, in effect, double the supply yeah. is just pie in the sky. But social, new social and affordable homes is only 30,000. This year. Yeah. But the announcement was... A million over five years. But not a million social and affordable, just a million homes. Oh, is that the detail? Yes. Oh, that's not what he actually said in the speech. No. But um, if that's the detail, that makes more sense. Yeah. And that's uh, that's normal market activity. Yeah. Right. So 200,000 a year is normal market activity. Mm. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a game changer by yeah. any means. Um, and, you know, we've heard those sort of announcements um, several times. And when you go back and look at the track record... It just doesn't show up. And I'm not sure that um, you know, providing subsidies to institutional investors to invest is really that good a use of government funding um, that there are enough incentives for not-for-profits to do it that can actually create affordable housing and deliver the same economic returns as 
regular housing. Mm. So this is not a shortage of funds. This is um, you know, a shortage of incentives that actually matter on the ground. Yeah, that's right. And and speaking on the ground, I don't normally turn the TV on in the morning, but I did this morning mm-hmm. because of this special event last night. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy in the Logan Shire of Brisbane that had had to move out of his home post-COVID, um, couldn't afford after the freeze of mm-hmm. um, rents and whatever else, um, was paying $380 a week, was then forced to pay 480 and couldn't afford mm-hmm. it, so he's now living in a caravan in a caravan park. Which the government's going to upgrade, by the way. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Although that's a tourism measure. But but the issue is, well, $480 a week is... A lot of money. It, it's a lot age. of money and it was up to 75% of his take-home pay. So... How do you change that? Yeah, and maybe you know, maybe that's where the the Commonwealth Rental Assistance Program could be improved. I think part of the problem is that people focus on you know, when people think about affordable housing, it always gets mentioned in the context of teachers, police officers and nurses, mm-hmm. none of whom are on the breadline. I mean they are we may argue that they're not paid as much as they should be for what they do, but you would not argue that any one of those are in particular economic need. Um, that there are lots of people, yeah, you know, people on minimum wage, people cleaning office buildings at night. You know, there's a whole bunch of people in our society who really struggle in those sort of spaces. The ones who are in the most need are to a large part being looked after in the social and affordable housing yeah. space. But it's those who are just above that um, where, where we're seeing real struggle. And perversely, increased interest rates might actually be the part of the solution to that as it pushes prices down, mm. which incidentally are falling at a faster rate than they fell in the early 90s. They are. History shows that the rate that it falls will be the rate that it uh, zooms back up again. Potentially. Um, and interestingly, we haven't had a nationwide double-digit fall since 1969. Yeah, um, which was before my time. We may be about to see one this year. But, you know, we're, is it just going to fall faster for shorter? Yeah. Um, who knows? And when they make that statement, it's basically Sydney and Melbourne suburbs that they're analysing. Yeah, but that is, you know, Eighty percent of the value of <laughs> homes in the country. In the country, yeah, but only maybe fifty percent of the total population. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let's get on to tax. Tax. What right. a beautiful the, thing. Uh, from a gross perspective, your highest, or at least, if not highest, second highest um, expense, I suppose, from a gross level, isn't it? Probably for most people. Yeah. You know, the someone on the average income is probably paying, on average, thirty cents in the dollar yeah. of their income, um, then maybe you can add in GST. Mm. But as a nation, we do have a relatively low tax take as a percentage of GDP. These are really difficult comparisons to make because some countries have um, social security taxes, which you know could arguably replace some of our super. So maybe you should be adding some of our super into that. Yes. But looked at on world standards, we are not a high-taxing nation. No. What we do do, and this is where I think your average Australian feels the pain, is we rely more on individual income taxes for that than most countries. Mm. And so you feel it in every 
pay packet. And I think that's the challenge for government. And, you know, by introducing franking credits in 88, I think. Okay. I think it was in the Keating era anyway. Which for our listeners are? Um, So that's a, a refund of the tax paid on company profits to shareholders, ensuring that company profits are taxed only once. Yeah. Um, and that largely explains why Australian companies pay higher dividends than American companies. Mm. And But what that means is that no matter how much tax Australian companies pay, it all gets refunded when it's paid out as a dividend to individuals. individuals. So yeah. some of those comparisons can be misleading. But okay. generally, we are not a high-taxing nation and um, we get reasonable services by world standards. So the stage three tax cuts, which isn't uh, new news, I suppose. It's uh, it's been happening for a while or predicted, but um, they're saying um, as a 30% tax rate blanket for anyone earning 45K up to 200K. Now, used to be, or currently, anyone earning over 180,000 is taxed 45 yep. cents in the dollar. Or 47 when you include the Medicare. Medicare. So we're now, they're saving 15%. So it's a win for the top end of town. Not a massive change to the bottom end of town, if we put it that way. Yeah, that's true. But bear in mind, and this I think was a political mistake on the part of the Liberal government when they introduced this, um, or potentially a dastardly plan to wedge the future opposition. But let's just let's assume incompetence rather than conspiracy for a moment. They're, by splitting the tax reforms into three parts, where everyone gets the first two and that we keep the benefits to the higher income earners till the last one, puts it in the spotlight and it's very easy to run the this is a giveaway to the top end of town. Yeah, yeah. When, and it, you know, when you say that's a nine and a half thousand dollar benefit for someone on two hundred grand, um, that sounds really bad mm. when you run on the front page of the telly. But when you put it in the context of you know, the top twenty percent of the population paying eighty odd percent of the taxes, proportionally, it's not actually that big a deal. But yeah. by splitting it out, yeah. They left this wide open, so yeah, I wouldn't right. be betting on these things happening anytime soon. Yeah, and remember, one hundred eighty thousand is only three to four percent of the workforce. It's a very small. So it's percentage. a very small percentage yeah. of the workforce, and when you put it in the context of, um, you know, pre pre Costello era, where someone earning fifty grand was paying forty nine and a half cents tax. Yeah. Um, We've come a long way, baby. We have. <laughs> I just feel there's a there's a wealth wealth divide gap. Um, there is a wealth divide gap, but there's not actually that big an income divide gap. So Australia does a particularly good job through the tax and transfer system yeah. of evening out income disparity, um, but which is probably what actually matters day to day to most people, mm. particularly when you couple it with the social security safety net. Um, but we do have a big, or a growing, and it's more the point that it's growing, inco- uh, wealth inequality problem. Yeah, the, the Partly, gap's widening. Yeah, it's widening, and it's largely widening because of rising house prices. Yes. All right, let's take a break, and we'll come back and talk power and gas. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, so we're back. We've, um, we've got Vince's thoughts on the budget and a little bit of history. I'm quite um, intrigued by today because we've gone back... 30, 40, 50 years because of having um, having Vince in the studio today. But um, right present, Vince? Yep, back to the present. Power and gas. Yeah, now that's an interesting one. Um, and it's actually got a lot of coverage in, in the budget news, notwithstanding that the budget's actually not causing any of it, right? So yes. it's a fundamental part of the inflation story. But there's next to nothing in the budget that is pushing fuel prices up. That's right. So Apart, the only one is which was already legislated is elimination of the fuel tax excise, excise. rebate, yeah. which finished three weeks ago, mm-hmm. and will start to flow into Bowser prices in the next week or so. Um, government policy obviously does have a significant impact, and um, you know when you look at well, what is driving energy prices up. Um, Gas prices are a big part of that. Now, although we produce our own gas in Australia, so the cost of producing a petajoule of gas in the northwest shelf hasn't changed because of the war in Ukraine. But that hasn't been going five minutes, by the way. So why the increase or projected increase over the next 18 months so Um, extreme? It's largely – well, sorry, the, the gas impact is largely because two things. One, we spent a huge amount of money over the last 20 years building gas liquefaction plants in Gladstone and wherever else. So more and more of our gas gets shipped offshore. And so we are now more exposed to the world price. And most spot spot gas transactions in Australia are referenced to export parity. So gas prices have gone up. But domestically, that's largely been driven by a lack of supply because what's happened, Ukraine's cut off Russian supplies. Um, We've been able to respond by exporting more, Mm. which has an impact on local availability, which in turn affects prices. 
The other thing that's been a very significant part of power prices is the increase in the transmission component, which is if you look at your, your electricity or gas bill as a fixed component, yep. which is your connection, and then you pay per unit that you use. That fixed component's gone up because the cost of delivering the infrastructure has gone up mm. through a number of reasons. One, it was originally built to deal with taking massive amounts of power from massive power stations in one direction to yep. consumers. It's now got to be adjusted to ship rooftop solar back the other way right. and it just wasn't designed for that. So that's a huge amount of capital expenditure. Mm. Power companies have been forced to pay higher what are called feed-in tariffs to buy the electricity from your roof and as ageing um, coal plants have been taken out of production, particularly in the you know, the Trobe Valley and the Hunter Valley, mm. we are seeing limits in the supply of energy at the periods when, as Tony Abbott would say, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So the evening peak, which in most industrialised countries, the peak is during the day when industry is working. Mm. In Australia, our peak happens in the evening when everyone comes home and turns on their air conditioning and cooks dinner. Yes. And so that's when the sun ain't shining. So, so it's a win for solar companies. It is in a way, yeah. Um, and so, you know, if we as a nation are saying we want to do something about global warming and contribute our share, yeah, then someone's got to pick up the tab. And so far, it's been largely households. Mm. Whether that's fair or not, I don't know. And whether it's been well spent is probably a bigger question. Yeah. But it's something that, you know, utilities tend to be about 10% of household budgets. Now, when you add in gas, electricity, water, sewage, garbage collection, most households are spending close to 10% of their budget. So a 10% increase in your power bill is a 1% increase in your household budget. Yep. Um, yep. And 56%, which is the number bandied around in the budget papers obviously has a massive increase. And and 44%, I think, for gas, yeah, which sounds very headlinish. It does. And, you know, if you're saying I'm paying four or $500 a quarter for gas, mm. um, 46% of that is a material amount for most households. The big thing for me, like, and it just hasn't happened in the budget, but the increase in fuel, like I was playing around with a fuel price calculator. Mm -hmm. uh, let, actually, let's do this for you. How many Ks do you think you drive per week? Um, I do about 7,000 a year, so I'm probably not your typical. No. So I'm going to do mine. Yep. Right? I'm about a 500 K a week person, and my car runs at about 10 litres to the 100, give or yep. take. A bit more around town, a bit less on, yep. the, on the main. Uh, so that's 50 litres a week at $2 is $100 a week. But I filled up on the weekend and – Diesel was two dollars forty, huh. right? So I'm paying. I'm just going to change that. Calculate two dollars forty. I my monthly spends five twenty two. Annual spend six thousand two hundred fifty eight dollars huh. on fuel. Okay, now it's a necessity, and I I, I need to do it. But think yeah. back to when I was paying a uh, dollar fifty, huh. right? There's just that three thousand nine hundred. So that's a fair chunk for for a lot of people, isn't it? It is, and most of that increase has actually happened in the last 
nine months or so. It has. Um, the year I arrived in Australia in 1990, um, petrol first went over a dollar a litre. And um, that was, well, sorry, during the Gulf, the first Gulf War. Yep. So that'll be 1990. Yes, 990, yeah. And I was working for Mobile Oil at the time, and Bowser's were not designed to deal with three digits. No. So we had to spend a fortune <laughs> to converting all of these things. There you go. So 1990 to 2022, to go from $1 to $2, yeah. that's less than average household inflation. Doesn't sound that bad. No. But it's but just been a whack in the face. half of that growth happened in the last nine months. Yes. And that's the problem. Mm. Um Luckily, or not luckily, but happily um, for the consumer, we went from having a value-added excise tax to a fixed excise tax when one of the Howard budgets, I can't remember which one it was, decided that, oh, fuel's falling. We probably shouldn't be um, hitching our income to the price of fuel. So what we'll do is we'll go to a fixed cents per litre. Set amount. And now that fixed amount hasn't actually gone up for some time. So... um, yeah, but I think the the positive is that you know when the war's over, it will come back down. Hopefully, to some extent. Yes. And, and so just on that, if you're thinking about your car, we are very very sensitive to the fuel component of our car spend. Yeah. But it's actually a very small percentage of the total cost of owning a car. It is, but we physically see it, don't we, every Absolutely. week? And that that's the difference. Yeah, and that's the point I make about depreciation. Yeah. That that's actually the biggest component of your car ownership cost. Yeah. So if you actually had to write a check every week for the amount of depreciation, we'd have a riot. We would, and, and a little. You can compare that to also tax. Yeah. We don't see the tax going yeah. out. We just see the net amount in our bank balance. That's don't right, we? So and that's why the um, uh, um, was that Howard or um, Houston. When we brought the GST in, it was illegal to show the tax separately yeah. at uh, the consumer level. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, fuels, fuel and um, energy, you know, 10% of the household budget or more, makes a big difference. Yeah. And and why we've been speaking on this podcast for the last four years about the importance of cash flow management in our own life. Hmm. Like, we've got all these external factors, budgets, um, changes to to fuel prices and cost of living and all that. We just need to control what we've got in our life. And, That's right. And apportion our funds. And in pulling this back to the budget, um, you know, one of the big changes on the tax front is the withdrawal of the so-called Lamito or Lamington. Yes. Um, the low and middle income tax offset, um, which will take $1,500 out of the income of someone earning eighty grand. Now, that's bigger than the increase in your fuel bill, yeah. bigger than the increase in your energy bill. And I didn't hear anyone making too much noise about it at the budget no, last night. No. Um, so if you're earning between 60 and 100, that's a $1,500 a year increase to the amount of tax you're going to pay. Yeah, which is on that level is, is quite yeah. substantial, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so... I'll just um, give some summary across a few different sectors, I suppose. And and if you if you enjoy the budget, you're probably still listening. But otherwise, you've <laughs> probably tuned out. <laughs> Surely not. Everyone um, wants to listen to you, John. Defence, uh, a t- increased spend of two percent of GDP for the first time in twenty years. So, a lot of that's towards military training, mm. getting our our soldiers up and about. Uh, obviously, Ukraine and cybersecurity, which is the new. Buzz term. The new front line. Mm. Um, I mean, that 2% target has been a 
an aspirational target for quite some time, and we've never quite got there. Um, it's um, cybersecurity has pushed it up. Yeah, um, and that's certainly been an interesting one. Mm. So, um, I mean, the other big changes uh, we talked about childcare. Um, the other big ones are in terms of uh, retirees. So, for your parents, for anyone who's listening, the ability to continue to work a bit longer and not have your age pension reduced. I think that's a, a positive move. And and the super thing too, which is pretty important. So you can now, they've dropped the age, haven't they, to 55 where you can throw a lump sum from the, the sale of the house. Yeah, the downsizer yeah. one, um, you know, particularly as the value of our homes has become such a big part of household balance sheets. So something like 80% of the nation's household balance sheets is real estate. Mm. Um, the ability to sell a property and contribute some of that gain to super. Does that have to be your owner or can it be an investment? Um, uh, it has to be eligible for some, at least some of the owner-occupied CGT concession. All right. So we so, need to live in it before we turn 55 is what you're saying? Um, well, sometime within the 10 years that you owned it. And, you know, 55, dropping it to 55, um, given the a lack of kids moving out of home. So if you think you're, if most people are having kids in their early 30s now. They're not ready to move. Um, you, at 55, you're unlikely to have all of them off your hands. Um, That's so maybe a good way to get them off your hands. Be. Uh, <laughs> it could be. It's Put putting the for sale sign out the front door might uh, might help them You're help them move. But um, I mean, I, I haven't seen it being taken up that well. And there is a bit of a, a window of opportunity that you've got to decide to do it after the kids leave home, but before it gets too much trouble to move. Well, the the thing is. When I look at that, I think, okay, we, you sell your home that you've been living in for twenty years, and the proceeds go into your super. Hmm. You've still got to live somewhere. Yeah, so it, it's called what's well, called a downsizer. Um, so, so you got to buy somewhere smaller, correct, or in a cheaper market, cheaper location. Yeah. So, and that's maybe why it hasn't been yeah. taken up that well. It's like, well, where do I go? Yeah, but your your strategy about moving into your investment property for a while and then. Because you should probably need to be selling that to pay for your retirement income because property mm. is a great wealth accumulator but a poor, a poor retirement income generator. That's not advice, by the way. Not advice. Um, well, in fact, it's not advice because it doesn't deal with a financial product. Correct. Um, but setting yeah. that aside for the moment. So that's the big one. Um, Healthcare, 2.9 bill. Yeah. It's a bit of a drop in the ocean, really, it in is. the scheme of the healthcare budget. But yeah. I think it's well targeted You know, at the prescription medicines, particularly for people who take quite a bit of medicine, which yeah. tends to be poorer, older people. Women's health during pregnancy is a, is a focus there. Question, do we want to encourage people to have too many kids? Um, well, interestingly, you should say that the fertility rate has increased for the first time in 30 years. Has it? I can't remember the time frame, but it did kick up in the last year. Still very low. Yeah by world standards. Yeah, it's interesting. It's probably good economic policy. I'm not sure how good it is for the individual household. No. And um, Yeah, it's good for the economy. So when you look at the Costello baby bonus, it clearly did have an impact. So there is a blip in the fertility in that period. Yeah. Now, whether that was people delaying delivery until July the 1st from 
June 30th. I don't know. COVID had an increased fertility. Yeah, it did actually. So that has kicked up. Mm. Um, The the focus on women was a good one, 1.7 bill. Don't know if it's enough or not, but it's uh, to to end violence against women mm -hmm. and children. Um, It annoys me that we have to focus on this, that that this is actually a problem in society. Yeah, and it would appear to be getting worse rather than better. Correct. Now, whether that's because we're more aware of it and people may have more of an opportunity to do something about it or whether it is a real increase. Um, But whatever it is, it's a tragedy for those involved. Um, To the point where we've amended the Fair Work Act um, to provide access for 10 days to to have family or domestic mm. violence um, time off. Yeah. Right. It's so, – which is fantastic, but, yeah, we shouldn't have to be here. Yeah, and whether – you know, back to my point earlier about, um, you know, if we're trying to deliver economic outcomes and social outcomes, whether putting that impost on employers is the – right response because now what you're doing is you're increasing the cost of employing parents yeah which may very well deliver the opposite outcome you're trying to achieve so that sort of um social outcomes are probably best delivered by the government um, because they're less likely to have those unintended consequences but but just to confirm i'm i'm all for absolutely helping them oh absolutely i mean um, this is a tragedy in our yeah, society and that, it's getting worse that that's my point yeah, is that that's it, an absolute it shouldn't point. be happening in society that's um, right but um, how do we stop it and what do we do about it yeah um but i think having 10 days of of domestic violence leave is a positive as how a, it's, as how a it's rule funded. it's a positive absolutely yeah. but my point is that by placing that impost on employers, mm. you may actually have the unintended consequence of making it harder for parents or single parents in particular to get a job. Sure. Therefore, we should be doing it, yep. but we should probably be doing it with the public press. Yeah, okay. Um, the other, um, possibly the Trojan horse in the budget is the NDIS. Yes. You know, this is a policy that's gone from nowhere uh, in the last Labor government, so the short, shortened policy, um, to you know what's about to be a hundred billion dollars annually, yeah, and it doesn't put a cent in any consumer's pocket. Um, no, well, when you look at the breakdown, the major breakdown of it. Where's my note? I've got hundred and uh, generally more staff. Uh, 138 mil on fraud fusion task force, 5.8 mil on dispute resolution and 6.6 mil to access legal assistance. Mm. Um, so much of the money disappears into the hands of you know, budget managers and case managers. Mm. And it was never designed to put a cent in the pocket of a disabled person. It's all about providing services. But and interestingly, $100 billion a year would buy a comprehensive life and TPD income protection policy mm. for every adult Australian. Is that right? Uh, so That's amazing, isn't it? Now, they're not direct, exact substitutes, mm. but it does put it in perspective. Yeah, it does. And even just building houses, I'm not saying this needs to be mandatory, but uh, provide assistance when we're building those houses so that they are accessible mm. for everyone. Yeah, entry... I, just got back from an overseas trip and in um, Finland and the US when I booked a hotel room, I was given the option of an accessible room or not. Really? I don't think I've ever been asked in Australia. Yeah. And I think that needs to change. 
Yeah. Um, but that this is the one that's going to need some serious work. That yeah. you know, this is a hundred billion dollars we weren't spending five years ago. Yeah. And um, it just seems to have got completely out of control. Yeah. Okay, so we're starting to um, get near the end of this wrap. Uh, infrastructure, uh, 1.5 bill freight upgrades to NTWASA, 10 billion generally on roads and rail across Australia. Yeah, I mean the Melbourne outer rail one does seem to be the the what one the the odd one out there. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to make a huge amount of sense. No. Um, the cynic in me suggests it's pork barrelling, but I'm sure the Labor government wouldn't be pork barrelling. That's, that's a liberal uh, scene. Un, unheard of. Uh, the speed uh, rail from Newcastle's getting kicked down the road. Yeah. Uh, but don't the roads need it? My they God. do. Um, you know, someone said to me the other day that uh, in New Zealand they drive on the left of the road. In Australia we drive on what's left of the road. <laughs> Very good. Uh, education. A lot of money. Yeah, I, mean, I think the emphasis there on vocational is a good thing. Um the TAFE system has been, I think if it was on the front page of the telly, they say it had been gutted for the last decade and, you know, we probably placed way too much emphasis on access to more academic university courses and neglected our vocational training. So I think that's a, mm. a positive. I'm not sure it's enough. No. And, of course, the states run TAFE. So how that gets translated when it gets from from... Parliament House to um, Macquarie Street. One thing that annoyed me was the uh, terminology around the spending on schools. So $770 million for more qualified teachers, happier kids, better schools. Well, uh, Who could argue with happier kids and better schools? Okay, so happier <laughs> kids, role the parents, not the teachers <laughs> or the schools. Better schools, the schools are fine. More qualified teachers, they're qualified, just give them better working conditions. What's wrong with teachers' working conditions. Uh, we're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what's not to like about 12 weeks leave? Well, I don't think it is 12 weeks leave. It's it. Yes, technically it's 12 weeks leave, but the notion, and this is about the budget, not about teachers, sure. but for the teachers listening, and I was being a little you'll understand. I know it's unusual. I, I know, but you poked the bear. So <laughs> uh, when nine till three is the required time to teach, right, without any downtime, but then admin needs to occur after that. I to fix this, teachers need a PA, not not <laughs> one PA per teacher, mm-hmm. but just each, whether it be per faculty or whatever, <laughs> um, so that when they finish at three three thirty, they don't have to spend another four hours that day doing their admin and. Whereas they re- should they should be red coaching the soccer team. Just enhancing, making happier kids. Happier fits. kids. Yes. That's right. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean that sounds like a great idea. That um, I. Yeah, it's a long time since I had to go to a parent-teacher meeting, but I have spent more than my fair share of time in the headmaster's office with my boy. For the wrong reason? You or, <laughs> or you? Or both. <laughs> um, and they, yeah. they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, but, yep. um, yeah, there does appear to be a lot of um, non-teaching work having to be done, which yeah. may or not add value. And turning parents into consumers of education services was probably a a mistake. Mm. Um, well, they're yeah. just leaving in droves and no well, one's willing to take it I like it up. The, uh, you know, the Jesuit approach, you know, give me the boy at seven and I'll give you the man. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Uh, environment, 1.26 to protect and restore the Great Barrier Reef I mean, is a great outcome. Who, who could argue with that? No, we can't argue with that great iconic part of the, the world, isn't it? That's right. 
um, electric vehicles. We're just getting more charging sites onto highways. So that's yeah, and that's an interesting one. I mean, that is um, you know where we get these well either deliberate or unfortunate side effects. That that is in effect a transfer of wealth from working Australians to wealthy Australians. It is. Because only wealthy Australians drive EVs. Yes. Um, so is that a good thing? Well, in the long term, it may accelerate the conversion to electricity, which is arguably a good thing since that's where a big chunk of our emissions come from. But only if we replace the f- emissions from generating that electricity in the first place. Yes. And, um, you know, we just need to have more people doing So the bigger Im- impact, I think, which was largely never got much attention was the change in the FBT rules on electricity vehicles. I'm not sure whether that's actually law uh, yet or not. Tell me about that. There was a proposal um, which got no press last night, and I'm not sure whether it's actually law yet or not, was to reduce the FBT on electric vehicles. So for the listeners, the fringe benefits fringe tax? Benefit. So if you recall, the, we had the luxury car tax mm-hmm. where there was a lower sorry, a higher threshold applied to fuel-efficient vehicles. Yeah. Was that like 76,000 or something? Something like that. Yep. Um, I, I know when I bought my last car, I sneaked in under it, be- under it because yeah, the, the new model had this stop-start feature, which you could disable. Yep. Um, and um, although I must admit, I've come to, to know and love it. It is, um, it is good. And so the more expensive model became cheaper because it came with the Stop start than the older, right? Lesser model, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. But there was a proposal that the value for FBT purposes, um, fringe benefit tax on salary package cars, would change, um, which probably would have a bigger impact on vehicle take up. Okay. So, what's uh, the space on that? Yeah, mm. and of course, supply. I mean, we're just not getting um, the supply of vehicles. Yeah, like it's hard enough to buy a new car, let alone a new electric car. Well, when second-hand cars are more expensive than new cars, you know you've got an issue there. Yeah, which may very well be partly fixed by increasing our overall vehicle emissions standards, which will then give manufacturers a greater incentive to send the EVs to Australia to achieve it. Mm. Um, What else? Um, All right, we're going over an hour So for pensioners, deeming rates up. um, Sorry, deeming rates not up which means most age pensioners will keep more of their pension if they earn income. That's because regardless of what you actually earn on your investments, the government deems that you earn at the moment about two and a quarter percent. So okay. you can earn 4%, so, you're ahead of the game. So the elderly's had a bit of a win? Yeah, um, which is not unusual in budgets. No. Got to look after the oldies. Well, there's uh, the baby boomers, aren't they? There's a majority at that end uh, at this stage. That's right. Um, I'm at the very tail end of the baby boomers. <laughs> Just scraped and, in. Um, I'm uh, not quite there yet, but I have achieved my preservation age. Well done. Always Congratulations. And I did hear you have a milestone coming up. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. mm. The last birthday I'm ever going to have. <laughs> All right. Well, um, that's been a wrap, Vince. I think uh, if you're still listening to the budget, you're really passionate about it um, and our, our take on it. Uh, if you... Want to get a snapshot of it? There's a five-minute reading guide somewhere in one of the local newspapers, so have a look at that. But uh, it's it's always important just to understand how it impacts you, but unselfishly how it's impacting the greater Australian and 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 where we're headed to as a country. It's it's really good to understand things that are out of our control, um, but what we can do in our control to uh, live 
a financially better life. Yeah, and just a quick update. Right. Um, I've just checked that the, the FBT concession is law from 1 July 2022. So Fringe Benefits Act will not apply under salary packaging arrangements for battery, hydrogen fuel cell and plug-in hybrid cars if these have a first retail price below 84000 Yeah, okay. So you can buy, I don't know if you can buy a Tesla below 84000 They are coming down though, aren't they? Not that but, I've checked. But, you know, sa- that's a $4,000 saving. Yep. So that'll pay for your increased fuel bill, which you won't have if you buy an electric car. Yes. Okay. Double whammy. No, it is. That's right. And just for, for the property nerds, uh, we, we are talking about the Help to Buy scheme on uh, our property podcast. So switch it costs and listen to that one. Perfect. Mm. Look forward to it. Vince Scully, thanks very much for coming on. John Pigeon, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for allowing us to be in your ears today. Until next time. Bye for now. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.